This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Moses is one of the most important figures in the history of salvation. Scripture refers to an entire epoch of redemptive history simply as Moses. Through him, the Lord redeemed his people from Egypt through the Red Sea on dry ground. Through him, the Lord delivered the two tables of his holy law and the Old Testament laws and ceremonies that pointed to Christ. Through him, God the Spirit gave us the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch or the Torah. Naturally, when we think of Moses, we think of law. Scripture speaks repeatedly of the law of Moses. In this episode, however, we want to think about Moses' relationship to something else, and that is the virtue of wisdom. This is Season 6 of Office Hours, and our theme is To Know Wisdom. Here to help us think through the life of Moses as a pattern of wisdom and foolishness is Charles Telfer, Assistant Professor of Biblical Languages at Westminster Seminary, California. He's writing his Ph.D. dissertation on the biblical scholarship of Campigius Vitringa, and he joins us to help us think through how to relate the biblical category of wisdom to Moses. Hi, Charles, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you for having me, Scott. So we're talking about wisdom, and I've been asking uh, all of the brothers about their working definition of wisdom. So when you think of that word, how do you think of it? What's your working definition? When I think of wisdom, I think of the, there's a kind of a cluster of Hebrew words that relate to wisdom. The word we normally translate it, wisdom as chokmah. We have other words like bina, understanding, or tuvuna, insight. And in the Hebrew Bible, those words are particularly practical virtue as opposed to a strictly intellectual virtue. So wisdom, it seems to me, maybe a a definition might be a rough definition might be the ability to choose the best means to the to the best ends. When we think of Moses, we think of law, and that's a natural thing. After all, he's the author of the Pentateuch, and through him we have the 613 commandments, and then principally the two tables of the moral law, the Ten Commandments. So it's perfectly normal to think of law when we think of Moses, and yet, as we'll see in Psalm 90, Scripture does connect wisdom to Moses. Now, in your opinion, do you think we ought to relate uh, the law, or Moses, and wisdom. For example, when people think about the Christian life, it's a temptation to reduce it to laws. And yet, we've been focusing on wisdom this year, this season, season six of Office Hours, and we're doing the faculty conference this year on wisdom because we want people to realize this is a really important biblical category that deeply influences the way we think about the Christian life. So, how do you think we ought to relate law and wisdom? Well, that's a large and important subject. I'm sure that I can't fully define or certainly exhaust in a brief discussion. And you're absolutely correct about wisdom being a major biblical category. We have a whole section of the Old Testament, which we call wisdom literature. Maybe one first reflection relating wisdom and law is from Deuteronomy 4.6, that that's where Moses himself tells the people that if they keep the law, 
that it will be their wisdom in the sight of the nations. So it's not just an intellectual understanding of the law that's sufficient for the people of God in the Old Covenant, but there needs to be a heartfelt embracing of the promises that are there in the Old Covenant, that God would be their God and that they would be his people, that God would establish a saving relationship with them, and that they would respond in a cordial, heartfelt faith and that they would obey the law. And as they obey the law, that that's their wisdom in the sight of the nations, and they keep their testimony before God by walking in his law and cleaving to him and obeying his commandments. The scripture says, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, and what great nation is there that has the statutes and rules as righteousness as all this law that I set before you today. So there are a series of factors there. Uh, Chief among them is that the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, is near to his people. And that's reflected in the fact that he has revealed to them a law which sets them apart from the nations. How now, as new covenant Christians, can we appropriate that way of thinking and that language, and particularly as we think about the church. Is there anything there that helps us understand how to think about wisdom? What I have in mind here is that as the world looks at the church, there are ways in which, of course, we look foolish. We're not very powerful, and uh, we do things that don't look very spectacular. A fellow stands up in front of a congregation and speaks. Uh, We distribute bread and wine. We, We put water on members of the congregation, and none of that probably looks very powerful or influential. And we do things, as Christians, of course, that are foolish not only to believers, but to non-believers. So how can the church appropriate this way of relating to the world via wisdom and law? Another big question. Perhaps one way is to be conscious of the fact that Christ has become for us wisdom from God. The New Testament tells us that it's through our relationship with God in Christ, it's by faith in Christ, that we now receive all the benefits that uh, were pointed to in the law. And having been justified by faith and having a right standing with God, not based on our own performance, but based on the achievements of Christ, both in his sufferings and in his active obedience, then we live a new life. We become, as the people of God, we become people who can potentially present an alternative way of living, an alternative humanity that the world is so desperate to see in walking in the ways of the Lord and clinging to him and holding to his paths. There's a new life, there's a way of wisdom that comes out of the living relationship with God that we have because of Christ. Perhaps that's one approach. So as closely then as the Lord drew near to Israel, how much closer has he drawn to us in Christ, right? So 1,500 years BC, there was no incarnation and there was no Pentecost. And here we in the new covenant live in light of the incarnation and in the power of the spirit of Pentecost, right? And so how much more ought we to reflect in our wisdom in our understanding, in our life, the nearness of God. Does that come close to what you were hitting at? I think that's part of it, yeah, by all means. In that Christological passage promising the the coming of Christ in Isaiah 9, it's said there that he will be a wonderful counselor. 
And that term counselor points to a an established tradition in Israel where certain individuals, because of their wisdom, because of their ability to know the right means to the proper ends, became counselors, counselors to the king. Uh, and that's almost a parental role of someone advising another person for their benefit. So, for example, in Genesis 45, it talks about Joseph as a father to Pharaoh, or in uh, Judges 5, it talks about Deborah as a mother in Israel. We have the promise that Christ will be very successful as a counselor, and perhaps part of that is us, his people, walking in his wisdom. He leads us in a new, wise way of life, and we can talk a bit more in just a moment about Psalm 90 and some of the things that that looks like, but he's the wonderful counselor for us. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And Moses is a kind of Christ figure, right? He isn't the Christ, but he is the mediator of the Old Covenant. He is the one through whom God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai. He is the Redeemer in an earthly sense of Israel, right? It's through Moses, it's through the raising of the staff and the parting of the Red Sea that God delivered his national people out of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry ground. And so there are real parallels, real connections between Moses and Christ, even as there are differences or contrasts. And so it's interesting to look at Moses in two ways, really. One, as an example of wisdom, and we'll do that in a moment. But also, we could consider him, at least for a moment, as an example of foolishness. One way that we learn, and that the Israelites were shown, that Moses was not the Savior was, for example, at Meribah where, according to Numbers 20, 11 through 13, Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord with Yahweh, and through them he showed himself holy. Walk us through the foolishness, Moses' foolishness at Meribah. Moses at Meribah has been told that he is to speak to the rock, and Moses exalts himself, and he dishonors the Lord in what he does, and he takes the glory for himself, and he expresses his own frustration with the people in in striking the the rock as he does. He falls in some ways at that moment under the condemnation of Isaiah, who says in chapter 5, 21, that woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. And Moses, at that moment, he takes the reins and he guides his own path rather than trusting in the Lord with all his heart and leaning not unto his own understanding. And he becomes part of the generation of those Israelites that fall in the wilderness. And so, he fails to become the Christ, as it were, that he's a type of Christ, but he, in the end, he fails to obey fully, and he falls in the wilderness with the rest of the generation, he and Aaron, and he's not the great Savior. He points to the Savior, but he's still in, in Adam, as it were, and we have to be connected to someone who does not fail, who never is wise in his own eyes, but always hears the Word of God and delights in that Word and obeys that Word, and that's the only one, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, there is in wisdom a component of faith, of trust, that Moses' job 
in that instance was to trust the Lord and to believe his word. And what he did essentially, and you can correct me if I'm not getting this quite right, is to disobey the Lord by adding to his command. So he didn't really ultimately trust the Lord. And therefore, because he had this special office as mediator of the Old Covenant and this highly symbolic representative function, he's excluded from crossing over into the Promised Land, which was a very great sanction, but also a very great illustration of the danger that maybe even we could say the spiritual dangers of foolishness. Do you think that's fair? That's very fair. Absolutely. That wisdom is tied up with faith. And the author of Proverbs tells us that repeatedly, that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. There are some who would argue that wisdom in an Old Testament context is purely a secular affair. Uh, it's savoir-faire, how to know how to to, uh, to get what you want. Perhaps in its most sinister example in the Old Testament is the example of Jonadab in 2 Samuel 13.3, where he uh, is very crafty and he gives advice to Amnon about how to slake his lust on his cousin. But we see even in Proverbs that uh, it, there's more to it. There's a religious component in the sense of True wisdom is a conscious of a relationship to God and fears God, and surely Moses failed at that moment at, at Meribah, his grand failure. And there's good indication in a variety of places in the Pentateuch itself that wisdom, though there may be, uh, if you will, secular versions or common versions of wisdom, there is real spiritual wisdom. We can see it in Deuteronomy 34, 9, when Joshua is said to be full of the spirit of wisdom. That's not a common thing, I don't think, in that instance, because it says Moses had laid hands on him and the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord Yahweh commanded Moses. And then we could look perhaps at an example of wisdom in Deuteronomy 18 that you could say has some secular function or some general function, but is also seems to reflect the wisdom of the Spirit. And it's a long passage and we can't, for time, read the whole thing. We'll ask the reader to go look at it. But it's the story of Moses judging the people. And his father-in-law, Jethro, comes to him and asks him, what is he doing? And why are you doing things this way? So now finish the story for us. What does Jethro do for Moses? Jethro, in that situation, counsels Moses that he's not walking in the way of wisdom, that he's going to wear himself out. And he counsels Moses to select from among the people certain men who are known for their wisdom and for their fear of God to judge the people and then to bring to him only those cases that are particularly difficult. And Moses follows his father-in-law's wisdom and puts that into effect, and it's a real blessing to the people. Maybe to pick up on what you said, or to emphasize the other side as well, that the Old Testament gives credit to the Holy Spirit for any manifestation of wisdom. So we have the example of Bezalel. He's the one, the craftsman, who was filled with wisdom for the making of all kinds of things. Here's an engineer and a man of great ability with different kinds of artistic forms and manufacturing, and he's referenced in uh, the scriptures as, as having wisdom from God. And that's universal, that from an Old Testament point of view, there's an appreciation for wisdom wherever it may be. And we see in Job and even in the Proverbs themselves, references to wisdom that comes from other non-Israelite peoples. And I think this is a very helpful category for us as Christians to be able to appreciate all the various abilities that God has allowed non-Christian peoples to develop, whether in music or in other forms of art or in terms of literature and even in terms of philosophy and other kinds of uh, thought systems and analyses. We can be very affirming as Christians 
descriptions of what we find in the work of non-Christians, because those are examples of the wisdom of God, even though they don't point directly to the grand wisdom of God in Christ. When we come back after this break, I want to spend the rest of our time talking with you and thinking with you about this wonderful psalm, Psalm 90, the heading of which is a prayer of Moses, the man of God, where scripture itself connects Moses very directly with wisdom. And we hope it'll give us some insight into the nature of wisdom. And we'll do that right after this. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. So Psalm 90 has a superscription, the value of which has been debated by scholars, but it's an interesting superscription, and it says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God, in its 17 verses. Can you read it for us, and then we'll work through it. Sure, by all means. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and then it's renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And so teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants. Let your glorious power be shown to their children. And let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands upon us. Establish the work of our hands. So this is interesting because when we think of the Psalms, we tend to think of David and other authors, but we don't necessarily think of Moses, and yet this is attributed to him. And you were mentioning off-air that some of the rabbis have had some interesting comments about this psalm. This is a psalm of someone who knows the Lord very well, as Moses did, who's very aware of the frustrations of this life, of the afflictions and sufferings of this life, of how things often don't turn out the way we hope they do. These are the words of a man who is very conscious of God in his wrath and the power of the wrath of God. This is a man who's seen the wrath of God in action, as few but Moses have seen, and yet a man who knows 
knows the mercy of God. He knows that his and all God's people's success and happiness and welfare is bound up with the favor of God. And I think these are deeper reasons for the traditional attributing of the psalm to Moses. But I did joke that uh, the the rabbi said it's only Moses who could, uh, as he does in verse 13, it's only Moses who could get away with calling God to repent. The word there, uh, return, O Lord, is the word for repent uh, in Hebrew. So possibly a play on words. This is a remarkable piece of work here in that, as you say, it's very intimate. And right at the center of it is verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Do you think it's fair to say that this psalm really is reflecting a heart of wisdom? In other words, if we're asking, what does wisdom look like and how does Moses articulate wisdom? Couldn't you walk through this psalm and say, a person who looks at the world this way is beginning to get a heart of wisdom? Absolutely. I think the first thing that jumps to mind here is that the heart of wisdom is able to look at the world without rose-colored glasses. Here we, especially perhaps here in Southern California, we don't like to think about the less pleasant parts of life. And God forbid that we should ever talk about death. Even graveyards around here are almost non-existent. You hardly ever see them. and They're sort of tucked away. Exactly. And it seems to me that a person who's connected to God by faith in Christ is able, even as the psalmist does here, to look at the very harshest, most unpleasant realities of this life, this life in all its pain, all its trouble and frustration, and even look death in the face and to relate to it head on without any flinching. And I think that's part of what uh, Moses is doing here. He can realize that even his life, and he had a long, strong life to the very end, is a temporary, short-lived experience experience. It's evanescent. It's uh, ephemeral, which uh, is a Greek word, of course, which relates to it's one day, as it were. Especially in contrast to God, right? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or you'd ever formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So a wise person understands that God is and has always been and shall always be, and we were not. We are now, but we were not. So we're creatures. We're finite. Even before the fall, we were still made from the dust of the earth. And now you add the consequences of the fall, death. We're not only finite, but we are, in the ordinary providence of God, going to die if we should die before the Lord returns. And so a wise person uh, gets that, and as you say, is realistic, sees the world the way it is. And yet Moses here isn't a cynic, is he? So he doesn't, as you said before, he doesn't have rose-colored glasses, but he's not without hope. He's not despairing, right? That's definitely true, but before we move on to the hope too quickly, notice how, and this is rather shocking, but Moses attributes the frustration, his frustration and the people's frustration to God. He doesn't hesitate to say, it is you, Lord, it is you who sweep us away. We're like ants almost coming out of an anthill and and just sweep them away. In some ways, God is our problem. The psalm starts there that because we are the objects of God's wrath, we see that very directly in verses 7 and through 9, we're consumed by your anger, terrified by your indignation. And the reason, of course, is that is our sins, that we are we are sinners, and that's the reason. We're under the judgment of God, and all our days pass away under his wrath. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. 
Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. So that's the crisis, really, in a sense, which explains why that, oh, children of man, are, are you know, they're returning to dust and gives us the, in a sense, the cause or the ground. You sweep them away, as you say, like ants are here. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. And it's all grounded in our sin. So there's a connection here between wisdom on the one hand, or a relationship here, between wisdom on the one hand and sin or iniquity on the other. Absolutely. And if the psalm just left us with that, we would be, we would despair by all means. Uh, Surely this is a very helpful psalm to us to break us of our addiction to thinking that we can find full satisfaction in this life. We think that if we just get this one thing or if we achieve this one relationship, that things are going to be happy for us. If I can just get married, then I'll be happy. If I can just get have kids, then I'll be happy. If I can just get uh, that promotion, then I'll be happy. If I can just retire and we go through life chasing one after another after another security or achievement or possession and we find that none of them can satisfy us and this type of psalm can help break us of that type of addiction, which is helpful. But the psalm points beyond to God and his grace and it starts there and it ends there in a beautiful way. He starts off by saying, Lord, you've been our dwelling place. And then at the end of the psalm, he says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. There's a number of things that are subtle, poetic connections that we inevitably miss with the English. And this is one of them. That here, verse 1 begins by affirming God is our dwelling place, which is ma'on. Lord, you are our ma'on. And then at the conclusion of the psalm, it says we're asking for his beauty to be on us. And that is no'am, his pleasantness. We get the name Noemi from that. So, it's a play on words, one forwards and backwards, noam ma'on. So, it's he himself is the hope of those who look to him for mercy. And it's only he who can satisfy, as we read in verse 14. So, a wise person knows that this life is not all there is. A wise person doesn't invest their whole being in this life. This is a God-given life. We do have a vocation in this world. We ought to pursue it. We ought to pursue the glory of God and to enjoy him forever. That's the chief end of man. And yet this life is not all there is. And Moses in this psalm is acutely aware of that and is trying to communicate that to us. You see that in verse 15 where he talks about affliction and 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. And then as you say, it ends with with this play on words in verse 17, which gets translated in the ESV, favor of the Lord our God. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. What does Moses have in mind here when he talks about establishing the work of our hands? I'm glad you mentioned our callings because that's Moses takes us back to that in this conclusion here. Establish the work of our hands. We often use this as our prayer in my language classes. That's the, the basis of our confidence that we're studying Hebrew, we're studying Greek, hoping that God would establish this, that this is a vain exercise unless God helps us and uses this for our good and the benefit of others. That it's along the lines, I think, of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 58, which says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So, left to itself, it looks like everything we touch turns to dust. One striking example of that in my life was when I was a kid, I lived in this 
house out in the country, right next to the Illinois River. And I went back to there years later, and the whole house had been completely demolished. They had taken the side of the hill out for a gravel pit, and the only thing that was left of the house, which I thought was the most stable thing in the world, was one nail. <laughs> my entire house was reduced to one nail. All my existence and all my boyhood dreams and comforts were reduced to not... They, they simply did... The place no longer existed. There's nothing to grab onto. But our life in the Lord, even Jesus tells us a a simple cup of cold water, that whatever we do in carrying out our callings, whether that's changing diapers or whether that's studying history or whatever it is that we're doing, that those simple things day to day to day, they will have their reward. They they will have their fruit. They do have a long-term and even an eternal meaning, not simply because of their impact in this broken, messed up world, but because they're in the Lord and we serve the Lord in these daily things. So this, quite the contrary, as you suggested, this is not a despairing psalm or not a call to just be an Epicurean and live in pleasure or something like that or be a cynic, but uh, by faith to serve the Lord and to look to him for our eternal reward. And this should be an encouragement to pastors, perhaps, as we bring this to a close, among others, insofar as, you know, it's possible to spend one's life ministering the word and the sacraments, making house calls, hospital calls, attending session, consistory meetings, presbytery classes meetings, all of those sorts of things, committee meetings of various sorts. And it might seem sometimes that it really hasn't amounted to much. But that's not true, is it? You, you know, you went back to your old house and all you found was a nail. But if you invest your life in the kingdom through the visible institutional church or invest your life more broadly for the layman in the service of Christ, this really doesn't come to nothing, does it? It has lasting value. Absolutely. And that was certainly the confidence of the Apostle Paul, who could look back at certain points in his life and say, all have abandoned me. He thought that his work had largely crumbled at key points. Our satisfaction is not in quantifiable results in this life, which will always be either up or down. But as we see in 14b, it's our satisfaction is ultimately his mercy. And that is he himself, as the psalmist repeatedly remind us, that he is, as we see in uh, Psalm 142, verse 5, you are my refuge my portion, or in Psalm 73, uh, 26. God is the strength of my heart, my portion. He is our reward himself, as God said to Abraham, I am your great reward, or in Psalm 16, 5. Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Our satisfactions come ultimately in him. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.